I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. You lonely. You by yourself, 2,000 sheep and two dogs. Three years, you stay there. No vacation, no day off, no holidays. You stay 24 hours close to the sheep. Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva, also known as the Kitchen Sisters, are well-known public radio storytellers. On today's show, we talk about their recent radio piece entitled The Sheep Herders Ball Hidden Basque Kitchens. They uncover a secret world of Basque culture, food, and cooking right here in America. But before we get to Sheep Herders, my esteemed co-host Sarah Moulton and I will take some of your calls. Sarah Moulton is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of the book Home Cooking 101. Sarah Moulton, how are you? I'm good, and I'm ready to hear what people want to know. Welcome to Milk Street Radio. Who's calling? Hi, this is Beth Mitchell. Hi, Beth Mitchell. Where are you calling from? I am in Mississippi. How can we help you? Well, I was calling to see if you have a really good recipe for a saffron broth for seafood. Well, it's interesting. I just interviewed a woman who had a tour of duty in Afghanistan, and she went back to start a company called Rumi, R-U-M-I Spice, and she's exporting saffron from Afghanistan. Wow. And uh, she's oh, giving women jobs who never had Wonderful. got paid before. It's, yeah. it's a great story. 
But what she told me was that most saffron in the world, like people say, comes from Spain. She said that 90... Right. This is where I've got mine from. Well, here's the bad news. The bad news is 90% of Spanish saffron is not actually grown in Spain. And oh, a lot of saffron is not really saffron. She said, you know that funny, almost stale flavor in saffron? You know, it's got that off flavor. Yeah. She said that's because either it's really old or it's not saffron. So real saffron shouldn't have that taste. Well, wow. It should have a fresher, brighter flavor. Yes. In any case, yeah, a seafood broth you can make in about 20 minutes, and I will let Sarah explain that to you. Well, I was just going to say that I always start by soaking the saffron, sort of letting it bloom in some liquid. Some places toast it first, you know, in a dry pan, and then add the liquid and let it just bloom a little bit, and then add that okay. to their cooking liquid. But, you know, when you're making a seafood stew, the wonderful thing about shellfish, if you're including shellfish, is they'll give you the liquid you need. Right. They'll just create it, and that's what I would stick to, like saute up some shallots or onions, a little bit of garlic, and then add a little bit of, well, wine and whatever shellfish you're using, you know, mussels and clams and let them open and they'll create the liquid right then and there. And then, you know, you can poach some fish in that liquid and then, I mean, just put the fish in at the end and then add your saffron broth. It's pretty much that simple. I mean, Chris, it's would, quick. Yeah. Oh, it is simple. Yeah, fish broth you can make in like 20 minutes, It's just what's so minutes. great about clams and mussels in particular is that they're a twofer. You know, you get the yummy clam or mussel and then you get all that yummy broth. So See, I can tell y'all are from the north because we do a lot of gulf shrimp down here. <laughs> oh, gulf shrimp. Well, good shrimp. Then you could use the shrimp shells, too. That would be terrific. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking, shrimp shells. Yeah, so saute up those shells in a little bit of oil. Okay. And then add, you know, water and a little bit of wine and simmer them for a while. And then add your saffron that you've soaked in some wine or water or broth okay. uh, to it, you know, and strain out the shells before you add the saffron. And then build everything else with it. Now you guys had a cheerful conversation. Um, she said that, that fake saffron, which is supposed to come from the crocus flower, it's dried, dyed corn silk. <gasps> no. I thought that was really interesting. Um, you, you might want to try if you use saffron. It's Rumi Spice, R-U-M-I. I think you can get it on Amazon. But you just try it and see if it Let's tastes different. Do a different. taste side yeah, by side. Anyway, it's a great, a great spice. So thank you for going. Enjoy talking to both of you. Thanks. Take care. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Janet Wright. Hi, Janet Wright. How can we help you? I made your hummus from In Pursuit of Perfect Hummus. Yep. And it was everything that the article said it was. Yay. That's wonderful. It was, it's fantastic. In fact, I've made it several times now. But the issue is the pita bread. I originally got it from the grocery store, and it tasted like cardboard. So I've got to do something about the pita. Well, there is something. I'll have two answers. You can take pita bread from the supermarket and take tongs and turn your burner. If it's a, You have a gas burner? No, unfortunately, oh. I can't have one of those. Okay. Well, if you did have a gas burner, I, I just heat it up and char it over the gas. You could do it with a grill outside if you had one. Or you can make pita crisps, cut the two halves in half and brush them with good quality oil. olive oil and maybe za'atar, that wonderful spice mix, or even just salt, and bake them. Oh. And when, at least when you bake them, they don't taste like cardboard. They're meant to be crunchy, you know. But, right. but for pita, we're actually working on a recipe. But you could take pizza dough, for example, into a small, let's say, two-ounce ball of some kind. Right. Simply roll it out with a rolling pin. Get a cast iron pan really hot that's well-seasoned. Cook it a minute or two aside, and you have a instant flatbread. Uh, right. You still brush it with olive oil first, wouldn't you? Because it will help it to brown better and give it a nice flavor. No, it'll brown nicely. I mean, it, the piadini, which is a flatbread from Italy, is made actually with lard, not oil. And that gives it a lot of flavor. But you could just use, you could buy store-bought pizza dough if you wanted. Do I've that. been working on my own flatbread. Oh, okay. Oh, so you're well, more advanced so, than that. So, so you already have the answer. So what, what is the answer for great pita at home? I'm finding that if I take a basic flatbread and I add a little bit of yogurt, mm-hmm. and that's a full-fat yogurt, Yeah that it makes it a little tangier and a little hmm. bit more tender than just like a pizza dough. That's nice. a good idea. Nice. We'll have to steal that idea. Yeah, no. you have to send that to Milk Street. I just kind of glump it in there. I'm not a great... The hummus is the one recipe I actually follow word for word. Everything else I just kind of eyeball. You know, the most interesting thing about the hummus recipe, besides the fact it's whipped and it's actually fairly loose and served warm, was that it's breakfast food. Right. Because when my editor was there... He got in a taxi cab at 7 in the morning, and the first question is where you want to go for your hummus. Right. And they, really? and they also eat it sometimes, not with pita, 
in the morning so they don't fill up, they'll take wedges of onion and dip it into the warm hummus, and that's how they eat it sometimes. They also serve it with lemon juice and pepper. Yeah, the hard-boiled eggs. And actually, I don't know if you've made that spicy meat topping that was in the piece. I I serve it with that, too, and that's really good. Boy, I'm getting hungry. Thank you, Janet. Thanks, Janet. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. This is Milstreet Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. If you do have a cooking failure, a conundrum, a complaint, or if you just want to try to stump us, give us a ring. 855-426-9843. One more time. 855-426-9843. Or you can send us an email. We'd love to hear from you at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? It's Jonathan. I'm calling from Cleveland. My question is for pastry recipes that use cream cheese or sour cream. Mm-hmm. Can I substitute either regular yogurt or Greek yogurt or strained regular yogurt? And does that need to be full fat or is low fat okay? Yes, you can. I don't want sour cream or cream cheese. You can substitute whole milk yogurt for sour cream because the texture is about the same. You'll get the same benefit in terms of gluten or texture. What are you using it for, by the way? A pastry or? I've just seen a number of pastry dough recipes that use it, and I generally don't have it. I came across this back in the 80s. Richard Sachs, who's no longer with us, unfortunately, wrote a book called Cooking Great Meals Every Day, which, by the way, is one of the great starter cookbooks. And he had a pastry recipe that used sour cream. It's called sour cream flaky pastry, and it really does make a flaky pastry. But you could use whole milk. I guess the question I would have is cream cheese and sour cream are very different. So, in texture right. especially. So, oh, yeah, completely. But I've seen different main recipes that used one or the other, not right, both or right. ever said use either. I don't know what you'd do with cream cheese because Greek yogurt's not going to be the same texture. I think a lot of times... Although strained yogurt, I mean... Maybe. Remember also the, the yogurt sort of mock cheesecakes, they work out pretty well. Mascarpone, maybe, well, or there's creme fraiche. There's all those ricotta cheesecakes. Yeah. Oh, that's true. But I've used it even for kind of a New York cheesecake made, made with strained yogurt. But I'm just wondering, because I've seen some recipes for pastry dough that use cream cheese, and I've definitely seen some other things, different recipes that use sour cream, and I'm just kind of wondering if there were reasonable substitutes. Yeah, the ho- whole milk yogurt for sour cream is a one-for-one, one and that works fine. Okay. Yeah. And strained yogurt maybe for the cream cheese. and For the you know, cream cheese, like, I, mm-hmm. I would just add more butter. <laughs> <laughs> I sound like is Julia. She used to work a lot too late. More yeah. butter. Yes, well, that's right. That's the, uh, that's the motto. So for a cream cheese pastry recipe, to sub butter instead of cream cheese. That's what I would do, yeah. Plus the right texture okay. and the right okay. amount of fat. Yeah. yeah. You said you used a strained yogurt in a cheesecake recipe? Yeah. You know, this was um, hmm. like moose wood stuff, but it comes out pretty well. Did it have gelatin in it? No. Hmm. You just need to let it lose a lot of the liquid. Did it have a broccoli forest on top? Um, no. Mm. no. Which is one of her favorite recipes. It was not the Enchanted Broccoli Forest. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It was a low-fat version of Moosewood. It was an addition. Oh, I remember that book. I remember that cheesecake coming out pretty well, Hmm. although more recently when I've made them at all, I've used ricotta. Yeah. We just did a ricotta cheesecake. That's my favorite cheesecake. It's very, very light. Right, right, instead of building material. But (laughs) I'm not trying to avoid the fat by avoiding sour cream or, or cream cheese. I'm trying to avoid massive amounts of lactose. And so yogurt for one and butter for the cream cheese would definitely work. Good. All right. Thank you very much. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for calling. Pleasure. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my conversation with the Kitchen Sisters. That's Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva. I'll be chatting with them about the hidden bass kitchens right here in America after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) 
There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Military Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Davia Nelson and Nikki Silver are better known as the Kitchen Sisters. Their specialty is uncovering cultures within cultures, these are small groups of folks who have created their own world with their own fascinating traditions and foodways. This week, I chat with Davy and Nikki about a recent piece they did entitled The Sheepherder's Ball. It was all about the Basque sheepherder community right here in America. These are folks who maintain many of their culinary traditions they brought with them from Europe. Davy and Nikki, how are you? We're great. Quite well, thank you. So you guys did a story, The Sheepherder's Ball, uh, Al just set it up in the 1940s. Uh, the U.S. government brought over a bunch of sheep herders from Basque Country to do a job, I guess, they couldn't fill from people here. They were paid seven bucks a day, and they'd spend quite a long time up in the mountains uh, with sheep. How did you get onto the story in the first place? Before we did the Hidden Kitchen series, we were interviewing John Esquaga, who has these big hotels up in Reno, you know, and casinos. And we were interviewing him for a story called Liberace and the Trinidad Tripoli Steel Band. And in the course of interviewing John Esquaga, he started telling us about his Basque heritage. 
And we said, oh, Basque Heritage, huh? Do you have a Dutch oven? And he started telling us all about Basque cooking and that he had a Basque restaurant inside his casino named Orozco for the town where his father was from. Let's hear a bit of the story here. I'm uh, John Squaga, John Squaga's Nugget Casino in Sparks, Nevada. We've been there 48 years. I'm a Basque, if you know what the Basque people are. From the Pyrenees, my dad was a sheep herder when he first came over, about 1900. There's a great number of Basque sheep herders in Idaho, Nevada, California, Montana, New Mexico. In fact, on the ranch where I live, I still have 75 sheep. I just want to keep my heritage going. The interesting thing is everybody thinks that the Basque people that came here and began herding sheep were sheep herders back in Basque country, but in fact they weren't. None of them were practically. But it was the only way they could get out. They were being so uh, harassed by the Franco regime in Spain at the time, and they were so oppressed and their language was suppressed, and the way that they could get out was... There was a um, not enough people in the United States wanted that lonely, desolate job of herding sheep, 2,000 sheep, one man and a dog alone for months at a time going crazy up in the mountains. But that was the ticket out for Basque people. And then, boom, they were up in the mountains with a herd of sheep never having been shepherds before. Also, they were very young. I mean, most of these boys were late teens, early 20s by themselves. It all sounds very wistful, as I'm sure it was, and lonely. So before we get to the food, uh, in your story, you interview the Lacerte brothers. And just in brief, what, what was their story? The Lacerte brothers came through New York, and there was apparently a place in Greenwich Village where a lot of the Basque would go right when they landed. And then they would get sent on trains across the country to Bakersfield. And these brothers were separated and isolated and just sent out, they said, overnight with 2,000 sheep and a dog and no training. And the way Francisco says you were lonely, there's something about the way he says that word lonely that just kills me every time I hear it because they were such a social family people. And now they were alone in the middle of nowhere and had no clue of how to do what they were supposed to do. We're going to play a little bit of the story here. This is Francisco Lasarte, a Basque immigrant. My name is Francisco Lasarte. My name is Joaquin Lasarte, Basque sheepherder. You're lonely. You by yourself, 2,000 sheep and two dogs. Three years, you stay there. No vacation, no day off, no holidays. You stay 24 hours close to the sheep. We make $7 a day. They pay you only once a year. You cook outside, mostly under the ground. You make fire. You have a Dutch oven. You can cook bread. 90% of the time it's lamb. So, so was the food, just to understand, there's Basque cooking, and then there's the shepherds and the way they cooked with a Dutch oven with the coals in the ground, right. which was typical for people, you know, if you were a cowboy or living on the land. So did they, they have their own cuisine as the shepherds as apart from Basque cooking? I think that the Basque cuisine is a pretty different cuisine than shepherd's cuisine. Because first of all, I don't think lamb is the centerpiece of Basque cooking. Right. It's part of it. But, but I think for shepherds, lamb was it. Lamb was it. And they also they talk about how the tenders, the guys who came to the camps to give the guys supplies and haircuts and company, um, would also bring some canned goods, too. There was cans of coffee, and there were sort of cans of sardines and anchovy and those kind of fish cans, too. But I don't think that, I don't think they were cooking like what people think of when you see that big, huge Basque table full of white bean and piperad and cooked peppers and paellas. I don't think that's shepherd's food. So they would use a Dutch oven, uh, cook bread in it, which is uh, typical of the American West, and they would uh, start coals underneath it, coals on top of the Dutch oven, probably. What, what, what is Basque bread? What is the bread that they baked in that Dutch oven? 
Well, I went to the Pyrenees uh, Bakery, which was down in Bakersfield, and they make what they say is the traditional Basque bread. It's kind of like French bread, but much airier and kind of lighter. Is that what you yes, remember? Yes, I remember Dave? it as a kind of a light French with kind of a crusty crust, sort of a, you know, would almost t- sort of tile up when you ate it. Delicious bread. So your segment was the Sheep Herders Ball. What is the Sheep Herders Ball? It was a time when everyone came together, um, you know, in the slow season, I guess, when they came in from, uh, it was in the winter, uh, and it continues to this day. Um, in December, they have it at a Basque club uh, in near Boise. And uh, the men, you know, dressed in denims, and then they said that the women uh, wore simple house dresses. And they auctioned off lambs, and uh, the proceeds went to charity. And it was a time for really coming together in the slow season. And they had huge platters of chorizo and stew, and uh, it, it sounds wonderful. And I, it still continues. The sheep herders, they organize barbecue and dance and everything. Big day for us. I have a lot of pictures of mom dancing at the Basque Sheep Herders Ball. The men wore Levi's and the women wore house dresses. An accordion, a tambourine, and somebody would play the spoons. They auctioned off a lamb. They had chorizos, Basque sausage. They have a a sandwich, pork tenderloin and pimentos. There's something I do want to ask, which is that you talk about people being for months at a time or years at a time up in the mountains with a dog and sheep. And they refer to a, a, a particular style of going crazy. So you spoke to William Douglas at the Center for Bass Studies about the vocabulary around this. It was very hard. 18-year-old kid who's been ripped up out of his community in Europe, and all of a sudden he's in a foreign land with a foreign language, and he's up on top of a mountain with a bunch of sheep. Amongst bass, there's a whole vocabulary of madness. The sheep herder who goes over the edge, who becomes sagebrushed or sheeped. (laughs) We used that expression quite a bit around here, going sagebrushed. I love yeah, that. Yeah, sagebrush. To go over the edges to get sagebrush or sheeped. Every time you do a story like this, you come across something really unexpected. You know, something charming, disturbing, interesting, but something unexpected. What was unexpected about this story for you? Well, I think the radio really surprised us and that these that radio was really tying so many people together. There was a woman named Espy who had a ba- the Basque Radio Hour, and she was this phenomenal sort of town crier, basically. She gave all the soccer scores from Spain of the Basque teams. She would be sending messages because, you know, people couldn't reach one another. So uh, there were, you know, obviously no telephones and no P.O. boxes. And so she became the one giving all the messages to people and all the news from the Basque country. You are listening to the Basque Hour, K-B-O-I, in Boise, Idaho, every Sunday at this hour. My name is Rosita Alegria Artis. My mother was Espy Alegria. She had a Basque radio program that went out to the sheep herders, the voice of the Basque. They listened in their sheep camps. They had little transistors. She wished them happy birthdays, gave them the soccer scores in Basque. It's such a mysterious, lonely um, image, these guys out there for months at a time on their own, these young boys, you know, tending sheep and with no one to talk with. I still have some memories, some good ones and uh, some bad ones. Maybe I can sing with those two guys a uh, cheaper song. Davia and Nikki, thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. That was Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva, also known as the Kitchen Sisters. 
You know, my kids can't stand to watch old movies. Things just move too slowly. So they won't be applying for jobs as shepherds. A Basque sheepherder spends three years alone up in the mountains with a couple thousand sheep for company. So my question is this. You know, what happens to time on a mountain? Does time flow like a stream? Does it unfold and then wrap itself up going nowhere? Well, my kids will never know. We want our lives to be fast and furious. And if we do run fast enough, we'll just run out of time. Right now, I'm heading into the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. So today's recipe is? French apple cake. So, I mean... You do have a lot of nerve because, as you know, for 40 years I've been touting the wonders of apple pie. Pastry, fruit, a little bit of sugar, tiny bit of spice, not too much. And it's sort of the ultimate example of the, the baker's art. And it's the ultimate example of putting things together that should be together. So now you're going to say the French, who know nothing about pie really, right? The French have something that's as good or better. That's right. This is an apple cake. It's not a pie. Uh, It's a lot simpler than an apple pie with those same great flavors. So you don't have to go through all of the effort with pea-sized pieces of butter and making sure that your temperature of your butter is perfect and rolling out a dough. It's really just almost like a dump and stir cake, but it has that same great flavor of an apple pie. So it's apple pie for, excuse the expression, idiots, right? (laughs) Yes, it's simple. Okay, so how do we get started? So we went right to Dory Greenspan, who's a baking guru. She knows a lot about kind of home-cooked French desserts. And we stole a recipe. We didn't <laughs> steal her recipe, but she had a great recipe to start with. Okay. Uh, we wanted a little bit more flavor to it and a little less moisture. It was a little bit soggy on the inside because, as you know, apples have a lot of moisture. So to solve the problem, we added one quick step to the beginning of the recipe. We pre-cooked the apples. Uh, apple slices... Uh, cooked in brown butter. And what that does is it allows that extra liquid to evaporate before it goes into the cake. Therefore, the cake won't be as soggy. And some people do this for apple pie as well. Right, exactly. So important here, the type of apple. One, you use two different types of apple. One uh, tart, like a a Granny Smith apple, and one sweet, like a Braeburn or Golden Delicious. That gives you a better balance of flavor. Um, These are both firm apples, so they won't break down as you're baking, kind of like a Macintosh would. So the interesting thing about our recipe is that this is really less cake and more pieces of apple kind of suspended in a custard with a cake-like top, if you will. The batter is really, really thick. Um, so when you go to put it into your cake pan, you're going to think it's, you know, it looks different than cake batter. It is different. It's very thick, and you're going to want to spread it into your cake pan. Uh, You also want to make sure you cook this all the way through, otherwise the center will be too soft and you'll get that soggy texture that we're trying to avoid. So one last thing. So I take a bite and I'm going like, I really wish I had apple pie or I get more flavor. What do I get? You get a lot more flavor. And you're getting this texture that's slightly different. Apple pie has that sort of gelatinous texture. This is more kind of buttery and custardy. So it's French, so there's obviously alcohol. I mean, I can tell, look at you, there's alcohol in this, right? Of course. course. There is brandy. I mentioned that we saute the apples in brown butter. You finish that with a little bit of brandy and just cook it off until it evaporates. So you've got that additional flavor in this cake. So uh, the French come over here, steal our idea for pie, turn it into French apple cake. But it does taste great. And the other thing is, if you're not good at making pie pastry... You just don't have to do it here, right? That's right. This cake is great all by itself. Uh, Even better with some vanilla ice cream or creme fraiche, or better still, creme fraiche ice cream. Thank you, Lynn. You're welcome, Chris. You can find our recipe for French apple cake at 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions and dilemmas with my co-host, Sarah Moulton, after the break. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. 
Check out WonderfulPistachios.com to learn more. That's WonderfulPistachios.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. It's time to open up our phone lines. Give us a call with a complaint or a question. And that number is, of course, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Sarah, how are you? I'm great, Chris, and I think it's time to get to the phones. Open up the lines. Let's go. This is Val Braun from Hedinger, North Dakota. Hi, Val. How are you? I'm just fine. How are you? Good. How can we help you today? I inherited a cast aluminum roaster. It's about five quarts from my mother-in-law. And it's about a quarter inch thick. It's a really nice one. It has a flat bottom. But the problem with it is, is I'm wondering if it should be reseasoned. And I think there are probably some foods that I shouldn't cook in it because Sometimes when you cook in cast aluminum, you pick up that aluminum taste. Right. Like milk will turn gray, and acidic ingredients you probably want to avoid somewhat. Okay. What do you think, Chris? Mm -hmm. I think this is a family heirloom, or is this something that's disposable? Let's start there. (laughs) Oh, no, it's family heirloom. Okay. It's cast Were you going to tell her to get rid of no, it? No, I was just asking her before I gave her my, you know, my vote here. Uh, my, my, my vote would yeah. be, although no one's ever proven there's anything unhealthy about aluminum. There was that scare years ago about Alzheimer's yeah, aluminum. Which but that's not been proven. It's not been proven. So personally, I wouldn't cook with aluminum. You can get well, a lot of cookware with stainless steel lining. I mm-hmm. think you could put it in a place of honor. In the kitchen or the dining room or the living room. I personally, well, because you don't want to have to worry when you're cooking about yeah, reactions with food. With food. And so you might not be thinking and you throw some tomatoes in or there's milk in it or something. I just. Oh, yeah. You know. Tomatoes wouldn't be good. You could roast in you it. You could roast in it. And if they're family recipes yeah. you remember yeah. being made in it, that would mm-hmm. be fine. Yeah. Right. Well, we've done roast in it, which come out really nice. Yeah. And my that mother-in-law had a big. Magnolite cast iron aluminum roaster, and we used to do turkeys in it, and they came out lovely too. Yeah, well, I think that'd be fine. Yeah, mm-hmm. it just as long as you keep the acidic ingredients out of it. Don't use milk and keep, yeah. you know, things like tomatoes, you know, or tomatoes, wine. Wine. apple juice, yeah, wine. Yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh-huh. All right. 
Well, we're going to find out 50 years from now, scientists will discover the secret to long life is aluminum. Well, you know, it's just like everything that used to be bad for you is now good for you. Well, wine and alcohol is good for you. Right, chocolate. We just had one of our contributors (laughs) on the show, Dr. Aaron Carroll. They discovered through studies that actually coffee is, every study they've done shows that coffee is good for you. So good for you. Yeah. Right, and I'm so glad. Fat is good for you. And aluminum roasters. I would use classic family recipes. Roasting sounds good. Yes. That's the answer. (laughs) Thanks for calling. I could always make it into a planter. <laughs> yeah, well, that's why I asked whether it was a family heirloom or not. Uh, yeah, it is. Well, keep it around. Okay. Thanks. Well, thank you very yeah. much for the information. I appreciate it. And thank you for calling. Welcome to Milk Street Radio. Who's calling? Hi, this is Mitch Gibbs from Phoenix, Arizona. Hi, Mitch. How are you? I'm doing great. How can we help you? Well, I'd really love to make uh, homemade locks and... Whatever I've tried recipes that I've been finding, I don't get anything close to what I would get at a delicatessen, the tender and rich and unctuous. I'm looking for some guidance. You know, I think one area of confusion as I've been trying to look into it is just the difference between lox and gravlox and smoked salmon. It seems like some of the terms get used interchangeably. Well, also, I think we're talking about cold smoke versus hot smoke. Well, all the things you just mentioned are cold smoked. So they're soft, and they don't have that crumbly texture. Although Gravlox is actually cured. It's, it's cured. not smoked. Right. Uh, but that's a whole different ballgame. So I put Gravlox in one category and then lox and smoked salmon in another. And then you have hot smoked salmon, which is cooked at a higher temperature and is really quite flaky. But you're looking for that buttery texture, right? I am. And whenever I've tried cold smoking... Frankly, I end up getting something that's a lot closer to the hot smoke, where it's leathery and it's smoke forward, and it's not the buttery texture. I know in Vermont, some of the guys, the old timers, used to take an old refrigerator that was sitting in their backyard, and they put a little hot plate at the bottom of it, and they would put sawdust on it, and they would turn the hot plate on. So there was no heat. There was just smoke. And so when you say cold smoke, there's really not heat there. It's just smoke. It is cold. And that, that's exactly what I've tried, right. or very similar to what I've tried. I have one of the little contraptions, the tube smokers, right. that you use some of the wood pellets and you just right. get it smoldering. And I have used my smoker as the cavity, but without any heat. And especially here in Phoenix, even in the winter, um, frankly, it gets a little warm. And so I've put the salmon on a rack over ice, and it feels like no matter what I try... I end up getting sort of that leathery. I mean, it's still delicious, but it's just not It's not buttery the way you want it to be. Well, you know, one of the folks who's been on the show occasionally, Meathead Goldwyn, he's a barbecue quote-unquote expert. He says that when you have smoldering wood, you don't get full combustion. He said you get a lot of off flavors, and that what you really want is a pure combustion for smoke. It's called blue smoke. So I wonder if the combustion matters. It might be part of it, too. Yeah. I know there's a good website, smoker-cooking.com. I haven't seen it, but I wonder if that would be helpful. It sure might be. Meathead is certainly one of the gurus, and unfortunately, when I looked up what he had to say about cold smoking, he basically says, don't try and do it at home. Ah. Well, <laughs> there's an answer. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear, that's I, I, depressing. I, I, well, I think it is tricky because you have raw fish, yeah. It has to sit in kind of a dangerous temperature yeah. zone for a long period of time. Yeah. And unless it's cured properly ahead of time or you have good temperature control, I guess yeah. it could be Yeah, I think it probably needs yeah. to be brined and all that. But check out this website. Maybe that will help. I'll definitely do that. I appreciate it. You guys are terrific. You both represent such a huge part of my home culinary education. And to be able to talk to both of you at the same time is just amazing. Well, thank you. And we didn't argue. Either. So, um, <laughs> yeah, Mitch. That, that was, it was a good day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Mitch. But take care. Thanks for bringing us together. Thank you. Kumbaya. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. This is Milstia Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. If you do have a cooking failure, a conundrum, a complaint, or if you just want to try to stump us, give us a ring. 855-426-9843. One more time. 855-426-9843. Or you can send us an email. We'd love to hear from you at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Mill Street Radio. Who's calling? This is Laura from Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Laura. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. How can we help you? Every year for Thanksgiving, I end up making knotted onion sage rolls, which is a recipe that I actually discovered years ago on a show that Sarah hosted. Oh. 
and they're delicious. So they ask for them every year. But there's a problem with them, right? Well, they're just kind of time-consuming, especially uh. around the holidays, because either I have to stay up for three to four hours or I'm, like, stuck at home for three to four hours. So I was wondering, you know, since I have to make the dough and then let it rise and then shape the dough and then let it rise and then bake it, if there was some way I could park the dough and cut the time in half and, like, do half of it at night and half the next morning? Well, yes and no. You could make the dough ahead of time and use, let's say, half a teaspoon of yeast, something like that, and shove it in the fridge for up to three days. Mm-hmm. We do this with pizza dough all the time. And as some bakers say, thyme is one of the best ingredients because it'll help develop flavor in the fridge. It's a cold fermentation. Oh. The problem is it doesn't solve the problem of having to proof the dough and then having to have it rise a second time. You still have to go through that process. So you can park dough in the fridge to a more opportune time to do the proofing and the rising, but it's not going to save you any time in that first and second rise. You still have to go through that process. Okay, so the only thing I could do ahead of time is actually make the dough. Well, you can make the dough, and I wouldn't you yeah. count that time in the refrigerator as the yeah. first rise? You can so get there a you lot got of the that. first rise So in she the could be doing something yeah, else, taking true. the kids to soccer practice or whatever else, and then... For three days? It's <laughs> yeah. a lot of soccer practice. Um, it would take those three are days awfully to get fit to... children, I'd say. <laughs> but, but the key, the one thing you have to remember is for a slow fermentation, you use less yeast. Yes. Okay. A package of yeast is about two and a half teaspoons, with three cups of flour, four cups of flour, you might use half a teaspoon initially okay. and then let it rise for two or three days in the fridge. But it, Sarah's right. It'll rise in the fridge, but it's going to be cold. So it's going to take, take it a couple hours anyway to come up to temperature. Right. So you don't really save that much time at the end. But it's a good way of managing your time in terms of when you want to actually make the bread. Yes. Okay. Great. Well, hopefully that helps. And now, what was the name of the recipe one more time? It's knotted onion sage rolls. Oh, boy. They do They're sound particularly good. good with turkey. So. Yeah. It makes sense. I may have to put that on my menu. Yes. Yeah. I have to give <laughs> Maybe you credit. Maybe you have credit. to send us the recipe, Laura. Sure, I'll send it. Laura, thank okay. you very much. Hope that helps. Thank you. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street Radio. Who's calling? This is Valerie. Hi, Valerie. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Pella, Iowa. And how can we help you? I have a question. Um, I have a very small kitchen but I love to cook and I love to bake. And so I was kind of curious what you would include in, I would say, I guess, a minimalist kitchen for pans and pots that would be multi-use. Excellent question. I've actually, over the years, had smaller kitchens with fewer things in them than I used to. Actually, I have a bunch of things hanging, my French pots, which I never use anymore. Yeah. So here are the things. 12-inch stainless steel skillet with I a agree. sandwich inside of copper or aluminum. Or aluminum, I agree. Check. A Dutch oven, a six-quart Dutch oven, Check. absolutely. I think a 10-inch carbon steel skillet I love, and it's really nonstick if you take care of it, so I definitely put that on. Or a nonstick pan. A medium-sized saucepan, which means two-and-a-half-quart saucepan, something like that. Obviously a cheap big stock pot for 25 bucks because they're just boiling water. Yeah. Baking sheets, half-baking sheets, I love. I would say rimmed. Yeah, rimmed. Yeah. Yeah. Two or three would be helpful. Nine by 13 baking dish, a couple. Which is a lasagna pan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A couple round cake pans, nine inches, probably not eight inches. High plate or two. And I think an eight-inch square baking pan, a couple of those would be good, and a couple pie plates, and um, a knife. <laughs> But in, in some way to sharpen that knife, because I've discovered that almost everybody at home does not have a sharp knife. Right. You can buy a very inexpensive knife sharpener, but you want that. Those would be my yeah, I agree. basics. She just said pots and pans. Oh, sorry. Because you and I could go on forever. I was about to, actually. Or did I already Yeah, you forever? were. When you stepped okay. into the knife lane. Oh, uh, sorry. Gadgets. Anyway, those would be the big things. I, I think of all those things, the 12-inch skillet and the Dutch oven. Are the, are the two things. The Dutch oven in particular. I could cook anything in the Dutch oven. Well, thank you so much. It's such an honor to talk to you guys. I've watched you for years. so Thank you. Thank you. Take Bye. care. Yep, you too. Bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. This week's Milk Street Basic is called the Flavor Pyramid. You know, here at Milk Street, we like to think of a recipe much like a construction project. There's always a foundation. Well, the foundation in a recipe, of course, is made up of onions or shallot and garlic, 
spices, and then a base of some kind, potatoes, grains, pasta, rice, etc. The second layer contains flavorings such as meat or poultry. And by the way, we think of meat and poultry more as a flavoring than as a base. We use less of it per person. And then maybe some fermented ingredients such as a soy sauce or a fish sauce. The third layer is greens of any sort. And then the final layer, the top layer, are made up of accent flavors such as ginger, lemon juice, vinegar, sugar, scallions, or fresh herbs. So thinking about recipes in four layers, a foundation of rice and pasta, beans, shallots, etc., a second layer, fermented sauces and meat or poultry, a third layer of greens, and a top layer of final little accents. Thinking about recipes this way really changes how you cook. You can look at a recipe, look at those four levels and see if they're there, and you'll end up being a much better cook in the long run. Smaller artisanal vineyards charge a lot more for their wine, so it's only natural to ask the question, are their wines really that much better than mass-produced wines? Wine expert Stephen Muse thinks he does have the answer. Stephen, how are you? Good, Chris. So, a little unusual today, the three bottles of wine, but in paper bags. Yes. Which means you're trying to dupe me. Yes. <laughs> well, not dupe you, but I did think it would be better if we tasted these blind. You know, you don't really know what's coming at you here, because we're really going to put your... Your tasting skills to the test. Such here, as they are. I think yes. today. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> so, subject, the theme, artisan. Oh, no. Artisan? No, 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 wait a minute. It's an overworked term. It is. It's applied to everything from coffee to cowboy boots, right? So, there's plenty of that around, but artisan wine has not succeeded in supplanting what I would call mass production wine. So, our listeners know that when they go into their local wine shop or liquor store or something like that, there are these, you know, beautifully arrayed racks of bottles with foreign names. And then when they turn around, there are these giant displays, cases and cases of wine stacked up with big cardboard displays and lots of marketing going on. Very, very cheap, by the way. This is, you know, an expensive wine. And I just imagine that maybe they kind of wonder What's going on here? What, is there a difference between these two wines? There's certainly a difference in price. So I thought today maybe we should explore this. Um, difference between artisan wine and mass market wine. So I'm about to pick the gallo. I, I just feel it coming. Okay. <laughs> well, let's start with wine number one here, Chris. It's a white. Um, it's pretty interesting. It has, it has some fruit to it, some yeah. sugar to it. Um, it's it's thick, I would say. Yeah, it tastes a good. little thick. That's great. Yeah. It's got fruit and sugar, and it's thick. Yeah. Good job. Why don't you taste the next one? I just want everyone to know at home I have to pour my own <laughs> wine now. <I'm, laughs> you've made me do all the work around here. This is red. Yeah, a lot of color there, huh? I don't love it. It's, it's, there's a lot of alcohol on this. Yeah. I don't think it's all that interesting, yeah. personally. Okay. I mean, it's okay. Okay, let's move on to wine number three, Chris. Also a red. This one has some, like, cherry notes to it. Yeah. Smoky. Uh-huh. Um, a little more complex than the last okay. one I had. All right. Say. Good. So we're going to have a little reveal here. Mm. See what you tasted? Yes. Gallo. It was. You did have a gallo. <laughs> gallo. But I didn't like it. Wine number one, Gallo yeah. Family Chardonnay. $7. Retail. Barefoot Pinot Noir, seven dollars. <laughs> and I'm number the one three, I thought was a little more interesting. Yeah, it's the Sutter Home Merlot, a six-dollar bottle. So, Chris, these are all mass production wines, and by mass production, I mean these wines are made in the millions of cases a year. Can I ask you a question? Did you still like me? <laughs> I mean, you gave me this test. You said our no, artisanal on one side, you are helping, mass produced on the other side, and you give me all mass produced wines. You are helping us make a really important point here. I think we have to be careful about acknowledging that this stuff amounts to wine, and I'll tell you why. The difference between these sort of wine like things and real wine is like the difference between, you know, coffee creamer and real dairy cream. There's Could you a put a little more difference. disgust when <laughs> no, you say coffee creamer? <laughs> okay. And what I mean by that is that, yes, 
mass production wines and artisanal wines have this in common. There's a grape involved somewhere. <laughs> but that, that is about where it ends. And there are good reasons for this. So let's talk about three reasons why when you make the jump to mass production, you, you lose something that is deeply important to wine. So I know you hate the term, but we're going to call these wines artisan for the duration here, Chris, all right? Um, artisan wines are typically made, small family property or small estate. The fruit is grown on the property. The wine is made with that fruit. The quality of the fruit is the thing that is the most important. Why is it so important? Because when it comes into the cellar, they're not doing anything to it. It's fermented in a tank. It gets a certain amount of maturation. Maybe it gets a tiny little dose of sulfur dioxide to make sure that it, nothing funny happens to it in the bottle. And that's it. So if the fruit isn't terrific, you cannot make terrific wine. When you start to scale up to mass production wine, where is this fruit going to come from? In order to produce the seven or eight or 12 million cases of wine, they have to buy fruit from all kinds of contract growers. And the, the bar here is very, very low. The fruit quality is very, very low. And it has to be that way. And they bring it into the cellars, into these 300,000 gallon tanks, if you can imagine that. And they have to blend it together and massage it to make something drinkable out of it. So first of all, scale is a big issue. The second thing is additives, right? There are more than 70 additives in the United States that, are, that can be used in winemaking. And these wines are going to make use of whatever they need. And often this means that the grape juice comes in, it's sort of deconstructed and put back together again, reassembled. They can take the alcohol out, they can adjust the, the uh, tannins with artificial uh, uh, tannin powders. This they is a little like the orange juice industry that has additives they put into flavor. Yeah. No doubt, yeah. absolutely. So scale, additives, and the third one is technology. So there's machinery involved here. In order to produce this thing that sort of looks and smells and tastes <laughs> like wine, but really is something that barely deserves the name, I have to say it. So are you talking, you're talking about wines that cost under $10 a bottle. Can you say that about all wines that cheap? Because I know a friend of mine, who I mentioned before on the show, is French, and he buys six, eight-dollar bottles of wine, which many French people do, and some of that wine's quite good. So it's not right. just about price, right? It's not just about price. It is pretty nearly impossible for a small-scale producer to make a quality wine and for it to appear on our shelves for something less than... 10, 12, 13, 14 dollars. Below that, at a retail level, you just know that there cannot be the care and attention going into that that there needs to be to make a quality wine. But here's the other piece of this that's very important. These wines at these prices, remember, they're using the technology and, this, and these additives to make the wine feel and taste bigger and fuller and richer than it is. You know, this is like like a baseball player who hasn't been on steroids. They all sort of look like Dustin Pedroia or something <laughs> left to their own devices. You do have to understand that the wines don't have this blown out, blown up, blousy sort of character to them. And that's something that a wine consumer has to maybe adjust to if he's making a transition from this level of wine you know, th that, to something that, better. You, you just said something It's perfect. It's it's cheap grapes on steroids. Because you're right, because they're too alcohol, too smoky, too fruity, too this, too, too that. Too sweet, a lot of sweetness. Too there. sweet, and really good wine has more subtle characteristics and doesn't have big muscles. Like and it's more like drinkable, and is better yeah. with food, and is honest, and is better for you, and it's not that much more expensive. Stephen, after all these years, and you've been sort of a calm philosopher about wine, you got agitated today. <laughs> you obviously care about this topic. Thank you very much. Okay, okay, Chris. This week, we discussed artisanal versus mass-produced wines, and I did have a final thought. You know, some things are actually better bigger. Big Ag did feed the world at a time when experts thought that the population explosion would mean death by starvation. Big box stores offer products at prices that millions can actually afford. 
And big oil keeps delivering fuel at historically cheap prices. You know, America still offers that choice, big versus small. And that's what makes America, America. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late, you can listen to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, or Spotify. Remember to subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every single show downloaded to your phone or tablet each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, head to our website at 177milkstreet.com. That's where you can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch our TV show, or order our new cookbook. We'll be back next week, and thanks for listening. Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Associate producer Carly Helmetag. Senior audio engineer Douglas Sugarts. Senior audio editor Melissa Allison with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help Debbie Paddock. Our theme music is by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Mm-hmm.